Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Second Act Actors. I'm your host, Dr. Janet McMorty, and I'm still a medical doctor simultaneously trying to pursue a career in acting. My guest this week is Nick Salma. Nick is my second lawyer turned actor. You may recall Rudy Sallow, my first ever lawyer turned actor. He said to me right off the top when I was like, you're my first lawyer actor. He said right away, I won't be your last. There's a lot of us. And he's right. Nick, Rudy, you guys should meet. You guys are fabulous. Nick and I have an incredible conversation about the similarities between being a lawyer, being a doctor, having to go tunnel vision focused your way to the the finish line of this career because you have to, to in order to pass law school, pass medical school without any consideration of any of the joys in life. You just go tunnel vision focus. He also talks about how uh, the correlations between, you know, being an actor and being a lawyer, like in front of the jury and the judge is basically acting. And that's the part that he loved the most. We also have a really intense conversation about authenticity and casting, which I think is a really, uh, you know, it's an important conversation to have. And we touch on some kind of controversial subjects. So I really appreciate Nick being open to talk about these you know, issues that have come forward within our entertainment industry. And you know, I, I loved the conversation. I really, really appreciated it. Please enjoy the fabulously talented lawyer turned actor, Nick Salva. story how did you how'd you go from buffalo to la tell me your story sure um let's see so i didn't go to college for acting um, i went to college for history and like all history majors i didn't know what i was going to do with my life so i went to law school um went to law school did the lawyer thing and uh i was working until 2020 when covid hit and I was I got OG COVID. I got the original I got the original flavor of COVID, um, and I got it at the stage at which doctors were just like when you called them and were like, "Oh, I'm sick." They were like, "Cool, don't come near us." <laughs> um, but after after that, um, you know, I kind of was in a place with my job anywhere where I was not really all that happy, and I'm like, "Well, world's going to hell in a handbasket. May as well do something I actually want to do." So I moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, and picked up with a small, small agency there to start getting some acting in. Wouldn't you know it, I got a role that landed me my SAG card. Um, National commercial for uh, Comcast. Um, Printer guy. That was my first role. I kicked a printer because it confused me. and then I lived there for six months, and then I had my SAG card. I wasn't getting any work anyway, and it was COVID, so everything was by video regardless. So I moved. I went to L.A. And I've been here now for almost two years. Wow. Why acting? Where'd that come I, from? So I'd always loved it, right? Like, I didn't... It's not completely random. Like, in high school, I was in every single play, and I was in big roles in all the plays. Like, I wasn't... I loved the stage... Um, I way prefer public speaking, acting, creative things to like sales. Mm. I hate small talk. Like I love creating stories. I love telling stories. I love writing stories. Um, I just don't, I don't like, I was okay at business and law and things like that. But the things I liked about law were standing up on my feet and essentially acting because it was just me, the judge or me and the jury. And I could just engage that way. Um, the other stuff was just kind of like, Oh, we're going to sit in this room and we're going to kind of go back and forth with each other. This is somewhat boring. Not, not into this. Um, but yeah, so that was, I was, I'd always, I sort of always wanted to be an actor, but it was one of those things where it's like, I've got this, career it's safe i can i can just do that um then the world blew up and i was like well i guess not so may as well when you were younger 
did you have people telling you, like, oh, you should be an actor? Or some, or the flip opposite, right? Was there someone who said, yeah, you're good at acting, yeah, you want to be an actor, but that's not the sensible thing to do? Like, did that come from anywhere? I, you know, I got both kind of in equal measure because I also... So the high school I went to, you could do a lot of things all at once. You could do sports, you could do arts, you could do academics without them interfering with each other. Um, so I did all of them. And, you know, my arts teacher would say, wow, you're really good at acting. Um, you know, this is not that, like, she was never like, oh, my God, this should be your career. You know, she was like, that's, you know, you're really, this is this is good. Like, don't stop doing this. Um, and I sort of, I didn't need anybody to tell me to go the safe route because I kind of, like, knew in my head instinctually, like, you know, oh, Brad Pitt's sort of his own thing. Like, like that level of actor doesn't come out from everywhere and I'm absurdly ridiculously competitive so I was looking for some place where I could compete and be and try and rise to the top I've gotten over that a little bit in my old age of 30 um, but back then I was like I gotta you know I gotta find it's that that didn't appeal to me because it wasn't a competition like it wasn't like mm. oh we're gonna we're gonna go in and we're gonna take on the top dogs like there's nowhere there's, what top dogs that's just not a thing in acting um so i literally was just like i'm just gonna keep you know this law thing is going fine i'm in college i'm playing rugby i'm studying history this is great graduated in three years and i was like wait a minute i actually actually have a plan um so i'm like law school sounds great went to law school and i was like oh that actually seems to work. Okay. So we followed through on that. And truth be told, I never really brought it up again. I brought it up a couple times in college to like my buddies, but we were all playing rugby. So none of us really talked about arts because we were all gorillas um, at the time. We've, we've matured since. But, you know, we went from that to law school to working so fast that it just sort of I, I never raised the question again um, until COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's definitely a... I relate to that from, you know, someone who went to... Like, I went to medical school, like, kind of right after... Like, again, after a science degree being like, you have to have a plan and the next logical step. It's kind of like you have a science degree, you go into medicine. You have an arts degree, you go into law. And then it's almost like a blur right? Like, I don't really remember when people are like, what made you want to do this? I'm like, I honestly don't remember. Like, it was just this blur of education because, and then, like, yeah, like you're saying, you kind of forget where the actual, like, joy of your life yeah. was because it was, it's such a blur because it all happened so quickly. Well, and you drop pieces yeah. of yourself, right? You leave them there along the way. Mm, interesting. For me, and I wonder if it's the same, because because there's so much schooling involved in getting to like lawyer, right? You follow the steps up and then you get to lawyer, follow the steps up and you get to doctor. For me, a big change and a difficult thing to adjust to was saying, Oh, I don't really, I don't really want to do this as much anymore, but I went through so much to get here and it feels like, Oh, was that a waste? And there's almost like a guilt associated with like I did so much to get here and now I don't like it ooh yeah like, how was that something for you as well too yes it was uh, I sorted through it a little quicker I think than most people only because law specifically that'd be doctor I would say doctor is probably a little bit different because law is three years in America and the three years is I hate to say it, but quite honestly, if you get into law school, you will pass law school because the law schools, like, that's how they, that's how they rank themselves is how many mm. students they pass every year. It's like a medicine kid. too. Yeah. Okay. I had my, I had a Once kid in my in. first year. You're in, you're good. But I had a kid in my first year of class who was trying to get kicked out, actively trying to get kicked out and they, <laughs> they refused. They wouldn't kick him out. Um, as far as I know, he graduated. He might've transferred, but it just, he was asleep in all our first year law classes. And those are like the terrifying, like 
black letter law, like you need to know these to pass the bar exam three years later. Um, he just slept. It was good for him. Um, yeah. And you have all that education and you're, you know, it's, you get entrenched it and you're a little bit like, how do I, you know, how do I just turn away from this? Um, mm. It's a, you know, the, and the acting side of it, it's a little bit like, it's easy to say to yourself, well, that's just a great life experience I'll draw on. Six or seven years of your life, like, just, you're just going to have it as a life experience now. (laughs) And it's such an identity too, right? Like it's identity, it's status, it's. It's almost cult-like. I love the word entrenched. Somebody used that who is also trying to get out of medicine and was talking about feeling like she's entrenched in this. And I'm like, that's cult language. But it's true because it's not just your job. It's like vocation, identity, because of so much of your life. All your friends. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because so much of... Well, I think it's also like... Not so much childhood formative years, but like your 20s are pretty formative, I think. And I think about looking at mine, where I was in a library most of it, and you're with the people who were also in the library with you, grinding out in the hospital as well. Of course, you're going to have these as your friends because they're almost like you were in the war together. Right. Right. And you survived it. Yeah. And those are the people who, when you had the rare breaks, you went drinking with them and you hung hung out with them and you had fun with them. And there's, you know, with friends, there's always, and, you know, this is not to take anything away from my friends, but there's always a little bit of recency with friends. It's the friends that you were closest with the most recently that you typically stay the tightest with into adulthood because adults are terrible at making friends. Mm -hmm. Um, It's I wish it, I wish it was different, but it's you know there's exceptions along the way, right? You have exceptional friends along the way, but typically, like you know, in your case, med school; in my case, law school. Those friends I'm in very close contact with constantly. Like you know, mm. that's just the facts. Um, and I haven't made a ton of friends in the acting world yet, and it's been two years because I don't know. I'm 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 an adult now. How do adults make friends? Even yeah. even act I can act in a scene just fine with someone. I don't need to be their friend. So it, it's not like an imperative. Law school and med school. If you don't have friends, you will go insane. Yes. Yep. I agree. And I think there's also like we learn how to make friends when we're a child. But the friends that we made are friends because of proximity, right? They're there because you're like, you live down the street, you go to the same school, like, and then when you get older, you realize, oh, these friends that I'm now making in these like, social settings, like med school, law school, you're now friends because of like shared experiences. <laughs> and you're like, okay, so these are two different ways to make friends. And then you come out of those shared experiences and be like, and then also you add on the pandemic where now we've lost all social skills. Like, yes. I don't know how to do this anymore. So then there's the whole, like, no new friends. I don't need any new friends. <laughs> but it's also, like, because I don't know how to make them. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't need yeah. friends. Who needs Who needs friends? Yeah. Who needs friends? I have enough. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Tell me more about the decision to switch to acting. I know the right. pandemic was a big flip for a lot of people, right? It was kind of that eye-opener. Um, tell me more about that. So... I got sick, um, and at the time, I had sort of transitioned from law into an in-house counsel job. So I was working at a law firm, and I was in-house counsel for a family company. And I had sort of talked with before COVID had hit, and I had been, you know, I'd been unhappy in the role for a while. Um, and so I was talking to my dad, who, because it was COVID, I was staying with my parents, and I was like, I just, this isn't working, like. I, I got to figure out a new solution. Okay. So he let me go. Um, and I actually had a literal whiteboard that I was trying to come up with the next idea of what I was going to do on. Um, cause remember at the time I was 28. No, I was, I was 29. I was almost 30. So I was like, yeah, you know, this is when all the sitcom characters, their life goes off the rails. So yeah. I'm, out, I'm, I'm running out of time. Um, 
And as I remember through the whole thing, I had kind of a dry sense of humor about the whole thing. Like I was, it was a little bit of dark humor, but I was, you know, kind of like writing things on the board about what I could actually do. What skills did I have? Um, And in the bottom corner, I had kind of made a note like unrealistic actor. But that had been, but that was there probably through three or four different revisions of the dry erase board. And my mom pointed out that the only thing consistent on the board was acting. Everything else was sort of, you know, every time I, every time there was a solution, it kept getting thrown off the board. Um, and so I was kind of looking at that. I'm like, wow, okay, interesting. But how does one be an actor, given the fact that I had just gone through a process where I had to be licensed by a state? Um, I didn't realize how many people say they're actors but have nothing but headshots. Yeah, it's, it's so I so I had a friend, a family friend who was in the entertainment industry writ large. He's a model, an agent, and a photographer. But he's a headshot photographer. He works with actors, and he's a management. He's a mother agency for models, so he helps models find uh, agencies across the country. Um. So he said, okay, I know this industry somewhat. I'll work with you for free because I'm not typically in the acting world. Um, I'm going to give you a series of tasks to do, and I'm going to need you to do them in relatively quick order. And if you aren't going to embarrass me, I'll forward your information off to some of my contacts, and we'll see if we can't get you started. Okay, cool. So that became my project. I worked on that. I did scenes. He didn't like them. I did them again. He didn't like them. I did them again. Actually, take two was fine. I just wanted you to do it again. Okay. The casting process. He's like, okay, we got to get you photos. Cool. Took a bunch of photos on my phone. He goes, no, not that. You need actual headshots. Go see this guy. Go see that guy. Paid way too much for my first set of headshots. I felt like an actor already. But through that whole process, I got pushed around, beat up, and I got an actual, you know, an actual somewhat package that I could send off to agencies, even though I didn't have a ton of experience. And by a ton, none. I had no experience. Um, no lessons, no no training I could point to, not a zilch. But he was like, this is, there's something here. I'm not sure what, but there's something. So we sent it out. The agency in Utah was interested. They signed me. um, And I was like, you know what? I've been in Buffalo way too long. So I packed up all my crap and I moved to Utah. Six months there, Worked with that agency, studied acting. First audition, commercial. Great. Then I went through the process of being rejected on every single audition you've ever been on for the rest of your life. But went through that process, took time, learned how to learned how to act, learned. I really enjoyed theatrical acting and TV acting because I like that pace. I like that style. Um, and learned that I really didn't like the com- like working in the commercial space, mostly because I have an acquired taste. So, I you know the, the the classic commercial look that you always see is it's a flavor of the moment type thing. So in the eighties, nineties, blonde hair, blue eyed, you'd think that everybody was straight out of the master race. Mm-hmm. Um, and re- and more recently. The push to diversity is ultimately a good thing, but what it means in the commercial space is that the castings get a lot more specific. Um, so I worked with a casting director for a while, and we were putting together the castings for some of the commercials, and the ad agencies were very specific. And I don't know if they had criteria in-house they had to meet, but it would be like, not just like, oh, we need a vaguely ethnic baby in this commercial. It would be... This commercial in particular requires a a Ghanaian father, a Puerto Rican baby, and a Haitian mother. But mm. specifically those things, we will not deviate from them. Yeah. And so that's what you would go out and try and find. Um, 
I'm Lebanese and Irish, so what I am is an American mutt. I just sort of fit in between a bunch of different ethnicities, and it's not as simple as like somebody somebody said to me once, "Oh, you're you know you're um, what is it ethnically variable or whatever the word like is ambiguous or whatever that ethnically That's the ambiguous." <laughs> Yeah, the yeah the the word that means nothing in I think in the yes. early two I think it was a huge thing in the early two thousands like ethnically ambiguous was like we can get away with anything and anything. then in like and then two thousand five two thousand six two thousand seven two thousand eight recession hits and all of a sudden the world starts to change a little bit because Gen Z not yet but Gen Z and millennials were starting to get these things. And starting to film everything and starting to, you know, point things out and starting to have more time on their hands with all this technology. And that's when you start to get Twitter starting to blow up and you're starting to get – and ad agencies were getting canceled in the early stages. There wasn't quite Me Too yet. But all these companies were suddenly feeling the pressure of, oh, ambiguous isn't getting us out of this anymore. Hmm. So let's go ultra-specific. And that's in really just in the commercial space. Um, yeah. And that was a long-winded rant about why I don't like commercials, because they're so specific, they're not going to cast me anyway. Yep. Yeah. No, and it's, it's interesting. I, I have this discussion with a lot of actors um, from every, you know, <laughs> from every ethnic background, ambiguity, whatever buzzword you want to throw on us. Um, even, you know, the, somebody I was chatting with last week, he was laughing because he's originally from Syria and they wanted a Syrian gynecologist. Wow. And he was like, so I'm from Syria, but I'm not a gynecologist, but you want an actor who's also a real Syrian gynecologist? Why don't you just go to the College of Gynecology in Canada and be like, you got any Syrian gynecologists? Why yeah. put it on a casting site? It, but it's, it's just commercials, right? It's yeah. so bizarre. Yes. It's so bizarre. And, yeah. and, it may, and that's, it's ultimately, it, the frustration with that ultimately... I get a lot of pushback in this when I'm writing scripts, but ultimately it's why I don't, when I'm writing scripts, I describe characters as little as possible to leave mm. as many, to leave as many casting options as possible open. Yeah. Um, and somebody, somebody reviewed my script and said like, you know, you really need to describe your characters more. And I'm like, I said, why? And like, what do you mean? Why? We have to know what the character looks like. I'm like, what popped into your head? Mm. That's, the characters, the characters' dialogue ultimately establishes who the character is, how they behave, and the things they do, and the actions that I give in the script. So it doesn't really, for purposes of the story, it shouldn't matter if the character's white, black, uh, Chinese, Korean. Ultimately, it's driven by, can the actor perform this dialogue, create this character, and live in this space? Now, there are some where... Mm-hmm. There are some where you make some choices, right? Like there's a car- there's a show. I just shot a, a pilot that I wrote, um, where one of the characters is a Palestinian refugee, but that journey informs the fact that he's become this drug dealer, not because he wants to tear down the foundations of America, but because it was the career where he could establish the kind of power and security that meant that his family was never going to be pushed around again. And it was meant as a direct, uh, a direct cut against our character who was in Mossad. Hmm. And the two of them end up working together down the road. Because, Inter- yeah, hmm. you know, why not? But that's that- that's a story driven choice. Yes, and like a story driven choice, and then like a hmm, like an experience driven choice, right? Like, correct. You could say you could you could describe characters as whatever you want if you if if that's part of the story but if you want somebody who actually has the experience to pull from like right. you can't just be like yeah sure hire whoever right like it's no, got to be somebody some of these who has the experience yeah yeah and we ended up actually working with an Iranian actor who hmm. um, he's been in Hollywood a while uh, but he's very very good um, and he he was he's great I'm trying I don't want to I don't want to name 
this is the one thing that I don't have an NDA about, but we're trying to sell the series, so I don't want to like blab about all these cool people who were in it. There were, they were great, but generally speaking, I, the, you know, he, he and I said, I mean, we got to talk probably for three hours when we were on set, where I could walk him through the character, and he had most of it when we sat down. It was just fun talking to an actor about my writing, but. Mm. That was, like, we kind of walked through, like, the different dynamics of, like, okay, this isn't, it's not a story-driven choices again. Informed by his experience, he's not, he's not a bad guy because he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy because this is how he protects his family. Like, hmm. he's, every choice he does is around his wife and his children. And this gives him money, power, and the ability to essentially insulate them from the kinds of things that he fled as a as a child Mm -hmm. interesting yeah i think you can with a lot of stories i think right now as well too like we're getting finally the ability to see stories that relate to experiences that nobody was putting on screens before and yeah because then you could you could argue Get, get the Syrian gynecologist, get the Palestinian refugee, um, or get someone who can relate to the emotional experience of that, that empathy of that character. Um, yeah, they don't have to have gone through the exact situation, but they know in their core emotional <laughs> hard drive, right? How yeah. that experience, that human experience. Yeah, and, it, and you know, unique. it... Exactly. And it's, and it's one thing to say to, I think it's one thing to say to somebody, you know, you have to meet this exact criteria. There's some things where you have to meet exact criteria. So there's a series I'm working, there's a series I'm creating and writing right now. One of the main characters is a transgender character. Mm-hmm. That's not going to work any other way. Like Correct. there's, yeah. I, I can't, I'm not going to say to somebody, and actually I was just, I was just told the other day, it was a weird flex, but it was a flex. Um, somebody was like, do you know who has a lot of transgender actors? I'm like, I don't know where this sentence is going. Um, the answer was CAA. I guess they have a whole mm. stable um, of transgender actors. Uh, 20 years ago, you could say any actor could play this role and it would be fine. Yeah. Well, the answer is no, not anymore. Because the character is... Um, you know, the character's dead name is Christopher, right? So they're 30 years old now. They're Christina. But I'm not going to hire Scarlett Johansson to play Christina because that's going to miss the whole point. Yeah. And, and plus, no matter how much she says about substitution, method acting, whatever, there is not a substitute to bring that emotional depth to that particular character. And there should and there shouldn't be. It's like a gay. It's like a gay actor or something else. You know, for a straight person to say they can authentically play that role, it's a little misleading. Um, mm-hmm. They may give an Oscar-worthy performance because God knows that the Academy hands out awards for saying you did something challenging. Um, but it's just not. It just ends up being not right or not ringing true or you, those are the movies that you watch and they won an academy award and you say to yourself wow that did not age well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah and this is maybe i'm gonna ask the question and i know it's gonna sound controversial um but it's mainly it's a po- it's a podcast you need to ask controversial or, questions. i know right and it's mainly because i want i'm learning about it right and i know i speak from immense privilege i am a caucasian female in canada like um the only thing that would make me higher would be like caucasian male and tall um but where does that where does that start and where does it end in the acting world right like where do yeah. we say okay like you are no like where does the specificity end right like because there's you there's arguments for and against and we hear it a lot like we hear gay actors who say i'm comfortable playing a straight character i'm also comfortable when straight characters play gay characters like i should not be playing pocahontas but 
I think I can emotionally relate to some of the things that Pocahontas has, like went through because it's she's a human who had human emotions that I also experienced. But like, where does that end? And I don't know the answer because I think we're still trying to learn that as we evolve. Yeah, I think in almost any other setting besides discussing acting, that would be a controversial question. But for actors, it's not. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. not. Actors have to constantly ask the question. And it's one thing, I think, to put a scene up in like a, a class setting, right? Like... It may be very important for you as you're trying to, for actors, and you as the royal you, not you specifically, um, Mm -hmm. to study kind of, you know, okay, this is a, it it may be useful as like for a young actor to say to themselves, I need to learn more. Playing a gay character is probably the best way I know how to learn. That learning should not go out and go out into like maybe the public domain, but in a classroom setting, first of all, I think all limits are off. I think all bets are off in the classroom because you have to, if you're not able to take risks inside of a classroom with your coach, if you have a coach who doesn't push you to take a risk, a safe risk that doesn't put you in danger, you're not jumping off a table head first or something, um, then you're not getting the full benefit of acting. You're not getting the full benefit of an acting class. I think the problem comes in as storytellers, and I think it comes in on the script side more than it does on the actor side. So the storytellers, until recently, have really been focusing on telling kind of majority-driven stories. Um, Or they've been making their assumptions in their own head about who their characters look like. So, and this, you know, everybody's guilty of this to some degree, because representation is kind of catching up. We just... They just debuted a Black Little Mermaid, and the world went crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things where you fill in blanks based on what you've seen. So if you've seen in powerful positions a lot of tall white men, that's what fills in the blanks when you need a presidential character, when you need a lawyerly character, when you need even a police officer character. Um mm-hmm. You know, until recently, the the black guy was the, you know, spunky sidekick. And that was because that was, you know, whenever you saw a black police officer, at least in media, they played the spunky sidekick. Now, unfortunately, with all the police involvement and things going forward, you've seen a lot more, I think, diverse police officers. So you're probably going to that that probably that dynamic has shifted a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to gay and transgender actors on the screen. I think the problem is that it would be one thing if you had no, like, there was just no gay or transgender actors. Like, it just wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. You still want to tell those stories, so you still want to get those voices heard. What we found going backwards, and, you know, hindsight's always 20-20, is that there were plenty of skilled actors who met those criteria. They were passed over to sell the story better for mar- for not story driven reasons for market driven reasons and I think going back to what I was saying before at the end of the day the right actor for the role has to be story driven even if you even if you just want to sell a better story like look at it the most uh, I can't think of the word right now but look at it in the most market driven way possible the best story is going to be the most authentic th- authentic story and the most authentic story is going to have a character who rings true with that role. Now you very well could probably relate to the emotional challenges and find good substitutions and put on a good role for, um, you know, the story of a lesbian in Toronto, you know, but you're you're not the right person to play that role, not because you couldn't play that role, but because there are lesbian actresses who can who know that story and can play that role. Um, and that's it's not a it's like anything else. It's a fuzzy gray line. It's not a strict black line. Like it, it, you know when you when you start to think about laws in early law school, you say to yourself, "This is the law. This side is wrong. This side is right." And then you realize that every law 
weaves around and loops back around itself because the law, even though you have something written on a book, the law changes every time a judge interprets it. Huh. And so if, you, so if you apply that to acting, you know, oh, yes, this should obviously be this and this. But every time an audience sees it, they take a different interpretation away from it. So all of a sudden it changes and it bends around and it weaves. And I think just generally what I learned from one one of my coaches right now is like young actors should take a second, a beat, and think about what roles to take to protect themselves and protect their kind of young career. That's the real kind of key is if you if you are looking at a role and it's you know specifically calls out for a gay person you don't want to take that role even if you say like this is a really cool role like i really want to be part of this story try to find a different way to be in that story because that role is set aside for a purpose and it may not be like a oh we need more gay actors on the screen it may simply be the story is driven by that character's particular struggle. And it's always going to be a more authentic story if that struggle is real. Like, the reason Marvel movies and everything else are fine with people doing substitutions and everything else, or Shakespeare is fine doing substitutions and everything else, is because none of us have been in a situation where there's a talking raccoon. <laughs> Universally, none of us have been there. So a substitution there is great. Um, yeah. Fantasy stories in general, um, the realist, like kind of the stories that are meant to tell gritty realism, that's really where I think the bigger concern steps in. Um, I don't even know how many you know gay or lesbian superheroes there are in Marvel, unless they're a, unless they're a character who's been changed for purposes of that story, like uh, in Deadpool. Mm-hmm. One of the people in X Force was a girl with a shaved head. She had a girlfriend. I don't know that she was lesbian. She might have been the character. Might have been bisexual. I don't know that character from the comic book. Um, so I don't know what the origin of that character is. So it could it could go any one of six different ways. Um, that's really, I think, where the focus is, is kind of the gritty realism, because when you're in the fantasy world debate, it's like what came up with Lord of the Rings recently. Like, everybody flipping out about the fact that there's a black elf or two, like, it's it's fantasy. Like, whether or not Tolkien intended for there to be black elves or Spanish elves or whatever is irrelevant. It's irrelevant because Tolkien wrote during World War One. It was quite literally, you know, it was quite literally Western Europe against uh, China and Russia. Like, that was, that was the, well, no, World War I, Russia wasn't the fight. But you catch my drift. It was, mm-hmm. he wrote about different conflicts in World War II, and he wrote about the different conflicts that he experienced. And his experience was entirely academic, academia in England in the 40s. Like that was his that was his world. He studied Finnish mythology. If you've ever been to Finland or met like a pure blood Finnish person, they are glowing white. Like they are all elves. It is one hundred percent. It's insane to see. It's great. They're so friendly, but they are all elves. Like that is who he was basing his whole mythology on. And in that mythology, it was. The Finnish people and their enemies were darker peoples. And I honestly think that was just because the Finnish were probably the whitest people you could possibly ever see. Everybody was darker than them. The Italians were darker than them. The Italians could be orcs. But that story, fantasy worlds don't matter so much. It's when you're trying to tell the story of, you know, the gay pride movement in San Francisco. God knows that movie's coming. Um, And I say that with my eyes rolling, mostly because, like, the push by a studio is going to be like, let's tell the origin story of the pride party. Even though, like, the whole meaning behind it is actually something much more deeper and more significant. It's the fact that we're recognizing a cultural establishment, the fact that it is something where, uh, for a long time, it was where I think 
gay and lesbian people could gather and feel safe um, mm-hmm. for the first time in a lot of communities. But naturally, I think a, the Hollywood movie is coming and it's going to focus on like the fact that it's just a frat house party now, which <laughs> it's, hey, parades, always, parades always are, but that's not the story. But that's neither here nor there. I think if you do that and you want to have the main characters who were driving the, who were the driving force behind it, it's misleading and disingenuous to have straight actors populate those roles. Not because they couldn't tell the story, but because the story would be better served not by people who lived it, but necessarily, but by people who can identify with that struggle much more innately and much more deeply. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tricky subject and I, I love how you explained it. I think that's, yeah, I think that was very, very well said, very well said, especially with your experience as a writer, actor, and, um, you know, like hearing your stories be vocalized by actors, I think, um, really kind of puts it, puts words on its feet and probably uh, is a stark realization, I hope, for like other writers of like, who should be these performers in these roles, who should be these characters. Yeah. Do you notice that you're pulling anything from your law career into now your acting career and writing? Have there been any parallels? Yes. Um, Literally the most recent pilot I wrote, excuse me, the most recent pilot I wrote was my, was a legal dramedy. So it's in the vein of like a David E. Kelly. Um, And I pulled from my law career for it. Um, But every... Every character you write or you perform draws on some aspect of yourself, right? So, you know, every time I'm up on my feet, I'm never afraid to take a chance because I was an attorney. And when you get the case up on its feet, at that point, it's just you. There's no safety net. There's no, you know, you can't tap out. You can't call for substitution. You're there. So you both have to know the material, so know your lines. And then you can't just recite it. It has to be living and breathing in you so that you can respond when, if let's say you're in front of the judge and the judge throws you a curveball question. Like there was one, there was one case I argued that was my client was being charged an extra half million dollars in tax for construction equipment that had to be brought to a fire. I made the argument that, no, the city and the town have to bear that cost because it was in the active uh, stopping of a fire. And there's case law and everything else based on that, so we brought the case, Article 78, which is just a state action. Um, But once it got up in front of the judge, I had to know the cases by heart because the judge was just going to pepper me with questions. I got up, I had my whole opening statement, Your Honor, we're here today in the matter of, yeah, 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 tell me about this case. But he was pointing, he was talking about one of the case laws. So I had to know that backwards, forwards, and how those facts applied. And I had to kind of keep moving and keep up with him. That's the same thing as good acting, which is learn the lines, and then you don't forget your preparation, but you just have it built into you. So when you know, when you really get good at reading, memorizing, and knowing the script, the script just sits in you. And the lines that come out, even though they're the writers, they're now yours. Hmm. So your character in the moment is saying what needs to be said, but the best acting in the world looks like improv. Hmm. Best lawyering in the world, it looks like the guy did no preparation. My coach told... My coach told a good story yesterday about this, and the punchline of the story was that a casting director said about one of her actors, you know, just do, you guys should, he was talking to a class, and he pointed to this actor, and he goes, you guys should all do what this actress does, which is, she does, in the casting room, she just threw it all away. And my coach said, yeah, but the ability to throw it away, that was four or five hours of work Mm -hmm. to get to the point where it was just off the cuff and natural. Yeah. 
Yeah, we hear that a lot as actors, right? When you get it in the audition room, just throw it all away. You're like, oh, yes. for God's sakes, what the heck does that mean? But yeah, I, I, it's prep. It's prep. It has to be. Yeah. You can't just throw it away if you don't know what you're throwing away. And if you're throwing, and what they, and most casting directors, they see so many things, and there's so many other factors in casting, I get it. But the thing they're always looking for, I think, when they say throw it away, is like, okay, you brought it with a ton of energy. Nobody's ever that excited about XYZ moment in their life that is in the audition room. So bring it back to Earth now. They liked what you did. Just bring it back to Earth. And, but, uh, but it's so hard to just be natural and fluid in a moment where you can't move, you have nothing in front of you. It's much easier to be in the moment when you're on a set. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to be in the moment in that stupid freaking audition room. Yep. And that's where the prep comes in, right? That's where, yeah, absolutely. I think that's where so many people think, like, acting should be easy, right? Because you're just being a, being a human. But you're being a very vulnerable, open, public, emotion-expressing human in a completely fake environment yes and not only that but and i'm sure you've had this experience on set when they're filming something it's not in order no like we don't start on page one and go to page 64 it's we're starting on page 64 which means you have to walk into that moment with all of the energy that has come throughout the entire script so you have to know the arc of the story and then bring that energy into whatever moment you happen to be shooting, which, yeah. you know, I'm, I've never been on a true TV shoot, but I've been on my pilot, which was shot over five days. And they, I know TV is typically a five-day schedule for per episode, I think. Five or six days, something like that. Streaming might be a little bit more. They're crazy. Um, but network TV, I'm, I think, is five days for that episode. So day one, they might have the location... For the very middle of the episode, where things have already gone sideways, and it is chaotic, and there is energy, and you guys are trying to find the bad guy, you're trying to get Nick Miller through whatever problem he's facing at the moment, the chaos has to be there from action. It is action, and the entire episode leading up to it has to be there in that moment, and this might be the first time you've met your castmates. And it doesn't matter. That's preparation. And that's the work that makes geniuses show up on camera and that make it look so easy. Like, Jake Johnson was Nick Miller, not because he was just effortlessly Nick Miller. No, Jake Johnson was Nick Miller because he did a crap ton of work. Pardon me before I say a French word. He did a crap ton of work to fit into the role of Nick Miller so that no matter what situation he was in, Nick Miller was living it. Mm. And it sounds super artsy and super pretentious when you lay it out that way, but it's just the truth. If you're going to do acting well, then that character, you need to be expressing that character every moment you're on screen because that's what gets noticed. Like... um, the other actor, Schmidt, on... Uh, I forget the actor's name. It's escaping me. But Schmidt is widely regarded as a breakout star of New Girl. He had been acting for five years before that. Like, <laughs> the reason he broke out was because his preparation would show up on the set and he would be... And he would improv. Like, he would freely improv inside of this character... But the reason that that was stuff was good and they kept it wasn't just because he took a risk. If you take a risk and you jump off a cliff, it's not cool. Mm. If you base jump off a cliff and you've got the parachute and you know exactly what you're doing, that's what ends up on like Red Bull or whatever. And him doing improv inside of the Schmidt character was genius because it all lined up with the character and lined up with the scene and lined up with the energy of each moment even though they probably filmed whatever ridiculous improv he was doing here before the beginning of the episode. So he didn't have the 
benefit of building up to it. He had to do it. His character had an impulse in the moment, and he followed his character's impulse. He didn't just throw something at the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't just follow his, um, him, the actor's impulse. Yeah. And I think what was a big striking thing for me um, from my first experience on set, and I say this, like, I say I had theater experience. I don't know. I did, like, the high school musical. Um, But it was a striking difference between being on stage to being on set. And the biggest thing for me, besides what you were saying, like, having been thrust in the middle of, like, Lord knows what out of order was the fact that when you're on a set, especially a large, high-budget set, nobody's paying attention to you. Nobody's watching, except for, like, the director, maybe the first AD, and maybe your scene partner. Maybe. It could just be, like, a stand-in. It could be a tennis ball. It could be no one. Everyone else who's on set, and there's hundreds of people, are not transfixed by the work you're doing. It's like we're on, when you're on the stage, people are sitting there, they've paid to watch you. And so everyone's quiet and everyone's watching you do your work and you're like, I'm doing great. When you're on set, it's literally like if you were, if I like look around, I remember nobody's watching me do my art. They couldn't give a shit. They're like, I've got work to do. I've got to make this prop. I've got to do this. So it's pure chaos going around on the set. So that is where the prep comes in. Because you're like, if I'm expecting when they say action, everyone to be quiet and watch me. No, you're not getting feedback from anybody. Nobody cares. They care if you don't perform because then you're going to take forever. And you're like, this person's wasting our time and money. It's fascinating. And I think new actors don't realize that. And yeah, and I think every new actor underestimates not just the level of like not paying attention to you on set, but typically how small, how small your role is and how Mm -hmm. like, as much as you've done a ton of work for it, you get a take. Like your character is there to service. Like unless you're and even Sydney Sweeney, I, I don't know why I've been making fun of her recently, but even she was, she's been acting for 10 plus years and she's only 24. Um, So her role on euphoria isn't even like, Oh, she just walked onto the set and they gave her the spot. Um, I think of maybe Imani Vellini in Miss Marvel. She might be the closest thing I can find to somebody who was kind of plucked and put into a massive production. Um, Mm -hmm. They're paying attention to her, but they're shepherding her. Yep. She is the budget for the movie. Like, mm-hmm. if you are a co-star, a guest star, you're there to service the main characters, the main storyline. You're there to give someone a cup of coffee. And when you give that cup of coffee, you need to be a three-dimensional character. But three-dimensionally giving somebody a cup of coffee does not require an Oscar-worthy moment. <laughs> requires a true moment. Yeah. But it's a moment of you hand that coffee... And if you improv, do anything else, nine times out of ten, that director's going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> or just or just cut you. Just straight yeah. up cut you from like, the production. Go away. Go away. Yeah. Your, your job was to hand the cup of coffee. Even on yeah, Friends, uh, even on Friends, Gunter, when he became, like, in season three, for two seasons, he did nothing but hand coffee across the counter. That was it. And he got noticed just doing that. But then he was given specific dispensation to do more. Mm-hmm. But those first early seasons, he was a featured background. He was yeah. part of the set. like, And he did a great job at being part of the set. But first-time actors are always like... I, I find that they come back disappointed. I'm like... Yeah. It's, it's like anything else. Like being an associate in a law firm or resident in med school or an intern in med school go backwards it's you are bottom of the totem pole like background actors aren't bottom of the totem pole because a lot of them just enjoy being background actors yeah like they're they're people in the local area who are just like oh it would be fun to run in the background of friends for an episode like that would be fun they spend 12 hours and they don't want anything to do with saying a line 
They want to just be part of the scenery and enjoy the process around them. So if you're a new actor, you are, here's, here's the totem pole, then here's you down here. Like, <laughs> you have to occupy that space. You can't occupy a space not meant for you because it's going to throw the whole thing off. But new actors are always like, no, this is my shining moment. I guarantee you it is not. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's nothing wrong with being like, this is my shining moment, but keep it to yourself. And yeah, I agree. Like, keep it to yourself and do do the best you can and be proud of the work you're doing. But yeah, realize, it's like, realize your place. There was, it's it's funny, there was something I read, I think it's in like one of the, like, old school audition books, like a Stanislavski or whatever. And it was like a quote that was, Oscar winning performances have been given to people with only like two lines. Like, so you can do that. It's like, no, you hand the damn cup of coffee. Theoretically. Yes, you can do that, but it's not because you put in a bunch of like effort on the camera. Like theoretically, you could win an Oscar for handing a cup of coffee. But it's because you truthfully lived in that moment and were a three-dimensional character because every character, technically speaking, is the main character because every character in the story doesn't know there's a main character in a story and an A and a B and a C plot. Yeah, That person making coffee has a full day of making coffee ahead of them and has a rich life behind them. So yes... It's better to not be wooden when you hand the cup of coffee across the counter. But if that's the Mm -hmm. end of your role, then you need to respect that and be three-dimensional and be three-dimensional while you're living it. But respect the fact that you are meant to be three-dimensional in that space. You're not meant to expand outside of it. Now, brilliant. Yeah. I, I would certainly love it if some actor out there does it so well that they create a whole... Oscar category for it. Unspoken, true-to-life acting. Like, that'd be phenomenal. It's not going to happen. Do you have any advice for anyone looking to change careers into acting? The funny advice, the the comedic advice here would be to say, don't. Um, You're right. (laughs) You would be the first one to say that, trust me. Um, and I hate the I hate the piece of advice people get like, well, if you can be anything else, don't be an actor. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. That's a, that's absurd. It's not helpful um, or productive to anybody. No, and it's a little bit condescending. From it's a quite a condescending Super piece. Condescending. From yeah, like actors are like, well, you know, you have to like. And the answer is, best advice I can give is that if you want to do it, if you can do it, do it. Um, it's easier to do it if you have as few attachments as possible. Kids, don't go breaking up with your girlfriends and leaving your families behind just because I gave this piece of advice. What I mean is manage your finances well and know what responsibilities you have. If you have three kids and you are the sole source of income, it is a terrible idea to go be an actor because... Putting food on the table for the kids is more important than your dream because acting in the early get is a very expensive hobby. Yes. If you want to take any 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 business in the early going, it's a very expensive hobby. And acting is a business. You're trying to you're trying to market yourself, you're trying to get an agent, you're trying to do all these things. You will spend thousands of dollars a year, if you're doing it correctly, on classes. And a bunch of that money will be wasted. Because you will think a class is great and then you will figure out later on that that class was a huge waste of time and money. And that's okay. But you have to be in the space where you can do that. So my best advice to young actors is know your finances ahead of time. Know that it's not a one year and done. And know that it's going to cost money. But money spent correctly. The money you waste is not an experience wasted, but it is liquid cash wasted. Hmm. So you learn something from the experience, and that's great. That money doesn't reappear because you magically learned something from it. It's not 
it's not a degree. So you take a bad class, take what you can from it. But if you don't manage yourself well, you're going to manage yourself right out of acting. Hmm. Um, and there's no, there's no art in being a broke, starving actor. There's no, there's no art. There's no glory in that. Every story you've ever heard of somebody being a broke artist that led to their greatest triumph, it did not. <laughs> they weren't. They either weren't as broke as the story goes because the actor themselves didn't tell the story, or sometimes they got lucky, which is very, very rare. There are very few lucky people in the world. Or, quite honestly, they were broke, but they had somebody supporting them. Or they were working full-time. They just were working paycheck to paycheck. Like, you're technically have, you technically have no money in the account, but you've paid all your bills. Like, there's nothing crazy following behind you. Your rent is paid. You have a place to live. You know, that's what you got to keep in mind. Don't listen to the stories. Manage your finances. And go for it. Anything that you are looking forward to coming up? Oh, I'm always looking forward to things. Um, so I'm looking forward to... It's the, the writing side of the house. I'm looking forward to pitching the new pilot I just finished. Um, not just because... It's the legal drama that featured the transgender character. Not just because it features that character, but because it's featured in such a way it's not tokenized. She's a main character. She's a lead it's about that story, but it's also about the family around her and how that interaction plays in the legal world where the law world is very much an old boys club. Mm. And so it pits that kind of family dynamic and the old world of the law against kind of the new school of lawyers coming up and highlights a lot of the friction that we're seeing in the world in that space today. Mm. Um, plus I'm a lawyer and I like making fun of lawyers. It's great for me. Um, I just did an audition for um, a cowboy movie for a lead role, so looking forward to that. Um, and by looking forward to, I mean I put in the audition, I did all this work, and I will not ever hear anything back. Because that's, <laughs> that's auditioning. Yep. Um, but it was one of those, it's like you, you get an audition sometimes where you're just like, God, I don't care that anybody might not see that, because I, I crushed that. I felt good about that. That's like a great, that's a feeling that you don't get early on because you don't yet know how to properly audition. Hmm. And this time around, I was working with coaches and everything else, and I was doing it kind of the right way, which is to not be afraid to ask for help. And it felt good putting the tape in. I wasn't like, oh, I guess we'll see what happens. This was a no. This was my best foot forward. This, if this is going to be my calling card, this is great. What a great feeling. That's, yeah. that's awesome. What a great feeling. Yeah. Do you have any final words of wisdom? If you think you're going to just be an actor, I would encourage anybody to open up their laptop because you've got one, guaranteed, or get the final draft app. Pay the 200 bucks or whatever it is for final draft. It's a one-time payment. Start writing. Even if you don't want to be a writer, even if you don't want to create shows, it helps your own acting so much because if you're struggling with dialogue, it helps to invent dialogue that you would like to say. And then you can read that. And then you can be like, oh, Interesting. And that gives you more discipline to read more scripts, to read scripts like Glengarry, Glenn Ross, to read scripts, all the Oscar-winning scripts, to pick up scripts from the TSL, the scriptlab.com, which has, if you sign up for a free account, you can download any script under the sun. They have Barry, they have Ted Lasso, they have all these like Emmy-winning and Oscar-winning scripts. You download those, and you read those, and you look into the show, and you go like, oh... It's interesting what came off the page onto the screen. Mm. But that's more discipline for your acting career because that helps you learn this is what a real-time script looks like. This is how the actors are working on them. Some of them even release shooting scripts, like the script that has all the notes from the final shoot. 
and fantastic. That's that's another lesson. But add to your don't just rely on being an actor. Add to your skill set and it will make you a better actor. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thank you, Nick, for being my guest this week. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me and being open to having a little bit of a com- conversation that's controversial. Classic lawyer, right? Oh, this is why. This is why he's such a good lawyer and such a talented actor. I'm just so thrilled for all the cool things that are coming out for him this year. I hope you will tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye. Second Act Actors is produced and edited by me, Janet McMorty. Theme music by Guillaume. Additional sound editing by David Studio. Additional video editing by Jackie Wadewer. Show notes written by Sarah Hopkinson. I record using Riverside FM. If you're interested in developing an interview-based webcast like mine, I highly recommend this platform. Shoot me an email and I'll direct you to the wonderful folks there. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest, email me at secondactactors at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. My love language is words of affirmation, so compliments, constructive criticism, and feedback are always welcome and encouraged. Negative Nancys, Judgy McJudgersons, or Debbie Downers, unless you're Rachel Dratch, regarding me or my guests are not welcome. It takes serious courage to share your story with the world, so if you're tempted to negatively comment about someone else's story, please ask your therapist why you're such a garbage person. Save the drama for the stage. On that happy note, I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye! Bye!